If you don't know, my name is Taylor Duke. I am the student pastor here at New Life, and so I get to work with the 7th through 12th graders, uh, and they're a blast. We have a great group of students down there. I even got to work with some of the 5th and 6th graders, and so uh, I, I'm loving. They're, they're awesome. We, they keep inviting new friends, and so the last two weeks we've had new students coming, and so they're they're going out to their schools, to their neighborhoods, and their families, inviting people, telling people about Jesus. And so I just get to be a part of that, and, uh, and so it's awesome. It's great. Uh, and so if you haven't been a part uh, of what's going on with the student ministry or even the children's ministry, I encourage you uh, to find out some information about that. Great things are happening. Uh, Stephanie is the children's uh, director, and she does uh, great with those, student, or those kids. Um, but so I'm Taylor. I have a wife, Kelsey, and we are expecting a, a baby next month, and so... Uh, it'll be our first child. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl, but either way, it's going to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> so, amen. <laughs> Before we go any further, let me pray. God, we thank you uh, for this day, Lord, for this time to come and learn more about you, uh, Lord, to, uh, to read your word, to fellowship, to worship your name. Lord, I ask that you uh, will be glorified this evening, Lord, and when we leave, uh, we will be different than when we came in, uh, Lord, and that what we uh, experience here today... Lord, we can take it to the world. We can take it to our, to our families and to our neighbors, Lord, to work. Uh, Lord, people we run to at the store. Uh, Lord, we ask uh, that you just bless today. We thank you. Okay, so I hate meetings. Does anyone else hate meetings? What about going into meetings blindly? I like to know what I'm going into. I want to know what the agenda is, what the subject is, and and when we go in, I want to know at the end, or before we go in, is what we want to accomplish um, just like I like to know what I'm heading into with the meeting, I want you guys to know what you're getting into by being here today. At the end of this, I'm going to be up front with you now. I'm going to ask you to go on to that newlifenwa.info, and I want you to, to fill out the I want to serve card. That, that's my goal today, is that what we talk about, what we say today, is you would feel compelled, hey, I want to be a part of what God is doing here at New Life. And so just tuck that in the back of your mind for right now. Uh, but a couple hundred years ago, there was a, a man, he was riding his horse along, and we'll call this guy George, and he comes across a group of soldiers, and they're trying to lift up this heavy log and put it on top of a wall, and, and they're not getting, they're getting close, but they're not getting quite there, and he looks over, and there's a corporal barking orders at them, and, and so George is kind of looking at them, looking at the wall, and so he asks the corporal, he's like, so, so why aren't you helping them out? And he goes, I'm, I'm a corporal. I, I don't do this. I give orders. And so George is kind of still looking at him strange, but he doesn't say anything, just gets down from his horse. And so he gets next to the guys, and, and they're getting tired and winded. And he goes, and, and as they start to lift the log, he puts his hands on it, and he helps them raise it up into place. And they're able to complete their task. Uh, now, that's not the, the end of the story. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about it's personal. Uh, we've been talking about major highway markers in people's lives where they interact with Jesus and their life then on is changed. Now, some of the interactions, they were a big interaction in their life, like, like the woman who was healed or Zacchaeus. Uh, but there's also several instances in the Bible where people have uh, several of these uh, occurrences where, where they interact with Jesus and, and it's personal there and it happens again just becomes more and more personal they see more about who Jesus is and so today we're going to be talking about a group of people uh, that that powerful moment happens and becomes personal to them a little background information before we jump into the text 
Jesus and his disciples, they're making their way towards Jerusalem. And uh, now Jesus' popularity is at its height, and people are starting to, to, to be excited. They're, they're seeing that Jesus is a somebody, and uh, they have a real contender for overthrowing the Roman government. Uh, the Israelites have been under their rule for several years, and uh, they've been pr- uh, promised in prophecies uh, that God would, would provide them a new king. Uh, one of those is Psalms 132.11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath, that he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. Or Jeremiah 23.5-6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign, reign wisely, what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. They're expecting a king like David in action, someone who made the nation great and defeated their enemies, the underdog who killed the giant Goliath, the man who led the Israelites into prosperity. They haven't had a king in hundreds of years, but they've been waiting for God to fulfill his promise. So with that background information, open up your Bibles to Matthew 20. We're going to be camping out here for most of the night. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. And and as our gift to you, if you don't have a a Bible at your home or or with you, is take that home with you, uh, use that, mark it up. um, but, But we want to give that to you. So verse 20 of Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. We know that the sons of Zebedee from Matthew, uh, 20, or Matthew 4, 21 are James and John. And Jesus has given them an awesome nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Now, they got, uh, we think they got this nickname because they were going through a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans weren't very nice to them, wouldn't let them stay there. And so they go up to Jesus and ask, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn up this entire town? And so Jesus is like, no, slow your roll, calm down a little bit. And so they have this name. So they're, they're, these two guys, these two brothers are pretty hot-headed, um, but they're, they're pretty courageous. And, uh, and so they come up, and they're going to ask Jesus a very uh, strong question. Um, their mother's name is Salome. And now what parent doesn't want the best for their children? You, you want them to be uh, a starter on their team or the valedictorian of their class. You want them to be the first chair in band. So what's so wrong about being great? After his first fight with Sonny Liston in 1964, Muhammad Ali declared, I am the greatest. Would I be wrong in saying that greatness is something we all desire, we all strive for? Whether it's in sports or work, education, family, or whatever area comes to mind, greatness is something we we would like to have. No one approaches a task and thinks, well, today I'm going to strive for mediocrity. No, deep down, if given the chance, whether we can be the best at something or, or just average, We would choose to be the best. It's not bad to strive for greatness, but you have to make sure that your motivation is in the right place. Now Salome comes up to Jesus with her sons and kneels before him and asks a favor of him. When we try to ask a favor for someone, maybe it's a boss asking for a raise or promotion, 
we like to, to butter them up, to stroke their ego a little bit, and then we ask. I believe that's what they're doing here. They go up to Jesus and they bow down, kneel before him, but Jesus sees right through it. In Mark's account, James and John are even bolder, and they come up and they tell Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. James and John are thinking, we're in Jesus' inner circle. We were there when, he, uh, when the transfiguration happened. And John was even called the disciple whom Jesus loved. They thought they were a shoe-in for being next to Jesus. Of course Jesus would do this for them. I think Jesus humors them in verse 21 when he says, What is it that you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left in your kingdom. Now, it might seem like this question is kind of out from left field, but Jesus has been talking over the last few chapters about the kingdom of heaven. Let's look back at 1928, just one page over. Jesus said to them, talking to the disciples, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Have you ever had those moments when you're talking to someone or when someone's talking to you and they say something, you fixate on that phrase and they continue in the conversation, but you only hear that part? My wife, Kelsey, will tell you I do that all the time and she'll have to see if, I, if I'm following, uh, paying attention. I think that's what the disciples did here. Jesus said, you will have 12 thrones and they're like, we get a throne, done, but they don't see the rest of what he's saying. And what's the significance of wanting to sit next to Jesus? Remember, the Israelites are looking for a king, for an earthly king, for a savior. In a kingdom, the second command sits to the king's right. This is where we get the term, my right-hand man. It was a place of honor, and we see in Psalm 110.1 when David wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The right hand was and still is the most dominant hand in the world. In ancient battles, the right one, the person on your right was the one who uh, protected you. They had their shield on, your le- on their left, and so they were on your right protecting you. Sitting on the left side was also of great importance, as this is where the third in command sat. It's no wonder that Salome wanted her sons to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. She wanted what was best for her sons. She wanted them to be important. They might not have the title of king, but if they're sitting next to the king, they're going to have great influence over the matters of the kingdom. Salome had the right intention, but the wrong definition. David Platt, the author of the book Radical, gives a very very different definition of the role of parenting than Salome's definition was. He says this, The goal of biblical parenting is to help our children to love a great God, and accomplish the Great Commission. So if that's the goal of biblical parenting, is to help teach our children to love God and to tell others about God's love for us, then what's the opposite side of that coin? He goes on to say this, The goal of biblical parenting is not to help your children to get a great education, be a great athlete, go on great dates, have a great career, or make great money. All these things are the world's definition of success. And if we are not careful, we will take our kids to practices all over the place 
teach them to get good grades, to prioritize, to take them to all these things that we fill their minds and their lives with that they need to be successful in the world. But the problem is, one day they are going to stand before God and all those things that we have told them are most important are going to burn up in the fire. And they are going to stand as beggars before God if they don't know what is most important. The goal of biblical parenting is to help our children to love a great God and accomplish the Great Commission. And I know that sounds like Platt is beating up just on parents, but this statement applies to all Christians. So what is your definition of greatness? Is it loving God and, and keeping His commandments? Or is it worldly success? Reading through a couple chapters before this, and even when I read this request, it sounds to me like James and John have the wrong definition of greatness. Jesus had quite a large following, and now the disciples are starting to become a somebody. You have a group of guys who the majority were fishermen. You have one who's an extremist for Israel. And one, as we learned last week, the ultimate sin was a tax collector. They had gone from a ragtag group of nobodies to now when they walk into a town, people know who they are. Jesus knows that this request comes with so much more than they realize at this moment. Jesus responds in verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus says to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? In the Bible, a cup is symbolic of one's divinely determined destiny. The cup in Psalms 16.5 refers to blessings. In Jeremiah 25.15, to disaster. In Psalms 116.13, to salvation. And Isaiah 51.17, to wrath. And this cup that Jesus is referring to is referring to his suffering. Jesus asked James and John, can you drink the cup? that I'm going to drink. And with glory and power on their minds, they eagerly answer, we can. This is like when you download new software on your computer and the license agreement pops up and it tells you to read the entire thing and then at the bottom click that you read it and you agree. I don't know about you, but I can speed read through one of those in about four seconds. That's the best time I can do. Jesus has read to James and John the terms and conditions describing what the cost of drinking his cup would be. But they don't fully grasp what it will truly cost them. They are so eager to reserve their thrones in the kingdom, but they don't read the fine print. Now imagine this with me. Jesus started off at the beginning of this, humoring them and their foolish request. But when they say that they can drink this cup, I picture Jesus' countenance going from a little bit of a smirk to he gets really serious. And he sees in the distance as John is sent into exile and the suffering that he goes through because of being a follower of Christ. He sees King Herod as he gives the command to execute James as the first uh, apostle to be martyred. Jesus knows that they don't realize what they've just agreed to. Verse 23 says this, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not me, for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. 
When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They just don't get it. Those places of honor, Jesus doesn't get to just pick who sits there. He doesn't get to save seats for his friends. No, those are thrones are for the ones who, like Jesus, submit to the Father's will. And so the other disciples are, are angry at James and John, but not because they asked this foolish question. No, they're mad because they beat them to it. They wanted those places of honor. They wanted that power, that influence, that recognition. And this is not a new argument among the disciples. In Mark 9, 33, as they were traveling to Capernaum, right after Jesus predicted his death a second time, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because of the way that they had argued, on the way they argued about who was the greatest. If you look deep down, would you be there with the disciples wanting greatness? I know that I would be there among them arguing. If I can be honest with you, the temptation of worldly greatness constantly whispers to me. I have to constantly check my motives. Am I doing this to bring glory to God or to show others how great I am? I love playing sports, but I was never very talented growing up. So I worked hard to be better than others. It wasn't to show how amazing God was in my life. No, it was to show others how perfect, how great I was. It's hard not wanting to be the greatest, especially when the world tells you to look out for number one. It's not easy to be humble, especially when you've worked so hard to get where you are at. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the disciples what true greatness really looks like. Verse 25 says this, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In those days you had Caesar, and then you had kings, and then you had governors, and so on and so forth. If you have people under authority, people under your authority, then you're, you're great. And if you had no one in authority over you, then you were the greatest. Jesus states what the world's definition of greatness is. This is where Matt Chandler, a pastor in Dallas, would say to the disciples, Are you tracking with me? I don't think the disciples are tracking yet. Jesus is about to rock their way of thinking in verses 26 and 27. He gives them the world's definition, but then he reveals to them a, a new definition of greatness. Let's start back in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't want to be great. I just, I just want to be further up in line. Well, Jesus addresses that in 27. It, it's, you have to be a slave. You have to be a servant to others to achieve greatness in his kingdom. Jesus just flipped their view of greatness on its head. They have gone their whole lives being told that in order to be great, you need to rise to the top. You need to have people beneath you to serve you. But in Jesus' kingdom, instead of greatness, instead of the greatest being served, the greatest serve. In order to be great, you must treat others as if you are the least. I picture the disciples grumbling at these words of Jesus. Peter said in 1927, I, t uh, 
we have left everything to follow you. The world tells us that if we put in our dues now, later on, we'll move up and we won't have to do those lowly tasks anymore. But Jesus says that's not how it works in his kingdom. If you want to be great, then you will serve others. And here's where I think it's about to get personal for the disciples. Jesus told them how it works in the world. He gave them a new definition of how it works in his kingdom. But then he's going to give them a perfect example in 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let that sink in for a moment. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the great I am, the king of kings. Jesus, who left heaven to live on the earth as a, as a human. Jesus, who had every right to be served by others. Jesus, who gave up his life so that we may have life eternally. Jesus is, doesn't just tell us what to do. He shows us what to do. In John 13, 4 through 5, Jesus shows exactly how we are to serve. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now at that time in history, everyone wore sandals. There was no shoes or boots. And the majority of the roads are dirt. And if you've ever worn sandals or flip-flops down a dirt road, you know how disgusting your feet will get afterwards. And it isn't just people who are walking down these roads. There's animals. And so it's not just mud and dirt they're walking through. The job of cleaning people's feet off was reserved for the lowest of slaves and servants. No one asked for this job. No one sought this job. Because you had to bow down to this person. You had to clean the dirt from between their toes. But Jesus took this role upon himself, showing the disciples the real way to become great is by serving others. The story I told you at the beginning about the soldiers and the corporal and George, well, after they were done... George dusts his hands off and wipes the sweat from his brow and he gets back up on his horse and he strides over to the corporal and he says, next time your men need help, call your commander in chief and I'll come assist them. Well, this George was none other than George Washington and he knew that nothing was below him to help others. Martin Luther King Jr. had this to say about being great. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your noun and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. We've been sharing stories of people here at New Life about the time when they intersected with Jesus and it became personal to them. Watch the screens as we hear about Brandon's story. Well, my childhood and upbringing was very challenging in the fact that both my parents were uh, alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, my biological father eventually died as a result of his addictions and overdose. And 
I've been estranged from my mother for about 20 years because of her continued addictions. And that was a real struggle for me because I'd always grown up, you know, knowing that you're to honor and love your mother and father. And, you know, I found a real hard time in doing that, knowing that they were the sole purpose of my pains and struggles that I was going through. But I was really blessed in the fact that despite all that bad stuff, church has always been a part of my life. And in fact, I can't think of a time in my life when church wasn't there for me. Um, I was very involved in summer camps and winter retreats. In fact, I met my wife at church camp. Um, years later, I moved up here to go to college at the university and I happened to be flipping through pictures of my lab partner's purse and saw a picture of her and was like, hey, I remember her from when we were in school. And, she gave me her phone number and we've been married 20 years now. So despite going to church my entire life and being a Christian, I always just felt this void inside my heart that I couldn't fill. And I didn't know the root cause of it, but I really thought that money was gonna solve that problem. And once we graduated college, got our family established, the money started coming in. You know, I set out on my quest to attempt to purchase my happiness. I would go out and buy things to try to fill that void, but never could get the satisfaction that I was looking for. And I'll never forget the moment that it happened uh, when I finally realized that I'm called to serve. Um, it was like a light bulb went off and that was the missing puzzle piece that, you know, I get my joy and my happiness from helping other people. So once I finally realized what God had been, you know, encouraging me to do, I immediately signed up and started helping with children's ministry, with uh, music ministry, and just anywhere the church needed at that time. And uh, it really became personal for me when I started to see the impact that was having in other people's lives. And then that once empty spot in my heart was just overflowing with joy simply by loving people and helping people and caring for them. Uh, so that far surpassed anything that could be purchased with money and just brought great joy to my life. Uh, a couple months ago, I was at a youth event and picked up this bracelet to serve as a daily reminder. You know, and it simply says, not to be served, but to serve. Um, and I, I'm just so thankful that God gave me that clarity that I was able to understand what it was that he was calling me to do. The, the moment that, you know, it really became personal and when I truly started to see the impact it was having and particularly in the children's lives and helping with the, the youth ministry and seeing, you know, kids that didn't have a relationship with Christ and just by what little time we're spending with them on Wednesday night that, you know, they've come to know Christ and become baptized and bring light into the world that they might not have been exposed to otherwise. So just that satisfaction and the joy of seeing that, you know, we're truly making an impact on these kids' lives. And that's, you know, made it so personal for me. We had a student a few months ago uh, start joining us on Wednesday night to come along with a friend. And um, you know, she was an atheist. She, um, entire family, friends, you know, she just didn't know God. And through coming to the youth group and she started to ask questions and wanting to know more and more about God. And we got her a Bible. And then a few weeks later, she started talking about next steps and wanted to know what she needed to do to further her walk with Christ. And, you know, within another week, she was baptized on a Wednesday night, you know, on the spot. And it's just so satisfying to know that, you know, we as a church played a part in, in her salvation and that she came to know God and wanted him and her life just from what we do on Wednesday nights. So to me, that's touched me more than anything here. And that we found a church family that is thriving and growing that has such a strong vision for the future. And I just strongly encourage anybody who feels that God may be tugging on their heart to volunteer to do some things, go visit the Next Steps table. You know, find something that you're comfortable doing. Because I promise not only will it change your life, it'll change other people's lives as well. And there's no greater joy than, than that.